You're very welcome to this podcast from the Diocese of Tuam, Limerick and Killaloo. I'm Stephen Fletcher. And I'm very pleased to be joined by someone who I consider an expert on all things to do with the Church of Ireland, and that's Canon Patrick Comerford, who is also in charge of continuing ministerial education in the Diocese of Tuam, Limerick and Killaloo. And uh, Patrick, thank you. I, I've asked you to uh, come on just to talk to us about this process of a new bishop. You very kindly told us all about the election of the bishop, and we are now told that the there will be a translation of the bishop on the 14th of April. That's something that I'm not familiar with. Could you just fill me in on, on what it is, please? Yes. Translation is a very funny word. Uh, and maybe it's appropriate for the new bishop, Bishop Michael Burroughs, because he's good on translation. He's fluent in the Irish language, but it has nothing to do with, with translating him into another language or, or teletransporting him to another galaxy. Bishop Michael has already been a bishop for many years. He's been bishop of the southeastern diocese for the Church of Ireland, uh, based in Kilkenny, the diocese is known as Cashel Fans and Ossery. So he's been elected the new bishop of Tume, Limerick and Killaloo. And he comes to this diocese at the end of Lent on Monday, Thursday, the 14th of April. But because he's already a bishop, he's not going to be re ordained or re-consecrated a bishop. He's already been consecrated a bishop. So basically the word translation means that he's just moved across the page to another page. If you think of translations being side by side on different pages, he's being moved over to another page in the church and he becomes bishop legally. So from the 14th of April, from Monday, Thursday, he can sign the legal documents. When priests are being ordained, he'll sign their licenses. When churches are being re-blessed or he needs to sign the checkbook, he's the bishop from that day and the book stops at him. Of course, the, the bishop's role is being the, the chief pastor of a diocese, being the, the, the priest who serves the priests. And then he's there to, to try and enable, to support, to foster, to nurture our ministry in the, in the parishes. What will happen, the, the, the symbol of a, one of the symbols of a bishop is his crozier, which is in the shape of a shepherd's crook, which shows that he is the shepherd among the shepherds. The other thing that's going to happen is he's going to hope, he, his idea is to visit every church in these dioceses, from, from Ackle Island down to Valencia Island. There are churches right throughout this diocese, and every part of the country comes within a parish of the Church of Ireland. And so he's hoping to visit every one of the parishes in this new amalgamated diocese. And another interesting thing that's going to happen is he has said he wants to be enthroned sounds like a very majestic sort of word, but he wants to be seated in his seat in each of the cathedrals in the diocese. Now, we, we, we sometimes refer to a diocese as a see and the bishop's main church as a cathedral. And it comes from the seat that the bishop sits on, the, the cathedra or the sede. And he's, he wants to be placed in those cathedrals in his seat or his throne in each one of those individual well certainly he's indicated to the priests of the diocese that he wants to be enthroned or seated in the four principal cathedrals in in this diocese uh, they are Tuman County Galway uh, Killala in County Mayo St. Flannan's in Killaloo County Clare and St. Mary's in Limerick but there are other cathedrals that he wants to acknowledge having a role as well so uh, St. Saint, uh, Brendan's Cathedral in Tantfert, just outside County Clare on the borders with East Galway uh, near the banks of the Shannon is also 
still a cathedral in the diocese. Kilfenora Cathedral is the second cathedral in County Clare. And the last bishop to be enthroned there, I think, was Bishop Walton Empey. Uh, and the cathedral is not used very often, but technically it's still a cathedral. And it's right in the heart of the Burren district. It's part of the connection of the Church of Ireland that goes right back to the to the Celtic roots of, of the church on this island. So, it, it, And it's at the heart of the Burren district. And if you think of the role of Kilfenora in music and poetry mm. and storytelling in, in County Clare, then I think it would it would say a lot if the new bishop decides that he wants to be officially installed or seated yeah. in Kilfenora Cathedral. Yeah, there's uh, usually two or three services a year there. I've taken part in, in some of them. Uh, but it's a nice, interesting building. And the OPW left it with underfloor electric heating. But I think we have to phone up Money Point if we're going to switch it on yeah. and, and switch it on about two weeks before we need it because it's such a big old building. But there's also a very interesting technicality in the Church of Ireland because, of course, the, the, the diocesan boundaries coincide with so many of the diocesan boundaries that our neighbours have in the Catholic Church. And Kilfenora and Kilmacdua are within this diocese, but these are ecumenical opportunities for inviting neighbouring bishops and the bishops of the corresponding diocese to be at these services and to show that bishops work together, that the previous bishops were commissioned by the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury to work together. And so it would be interesting if the, the bishops from all of these dioceses also turn up. They'd be invited, although there's one bishop that technically won't be able to turn up, I think. Uh, Kilfenor and Kilmacdua in the Catholic Church are amalgamated with the Diocese of Galway. And technically, the Pope remains the bishop of one of those. But the new bishop is also chair of the Anglican Centre in Rome. So he has good contacts with the Vatican. Yeah, well, we might, well, might have We might yet find a papal visit just to, to make the new bishop welcome in County Clare. Well, that would be marvellous, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would uh, be quite extraordinary. But, uh, well, we, we hope and pray that uh, that will happen. And he he, he ha- doesn't have other things in his diary then. So, uh, Patrick, it will function then as a united diocese. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's, we cover such a huge area now. Uh, well, really, you could, you could drive the full route of the Wild Atlantic Way and never be outside the diocese for most of that journey. Somebody joked that instead of getting a, a fuel allowance for his car, that he might need a, a blade allowance for a helicopter. <laughs> but it is big. By Irish standards and, and even by English standards too, I think dioceses like, like the Diocese of Lichfield, which stretches from the borders of Wales to the northern fringes of Birmingham, might just be about the same size. It's not big by the standards of dioceses in Australia or Canada or, or dioceses that are connected by islands in New Zealand or the Indian Ocean. It's big by Irish standards, but we have to be sensible about this. A bishop needs to be seen in a not just in a diocese but at civic functions because he's not just a bishop to look after the members of a, a closed church. The Church of Ireland is an open church and all are welcome. And it's important that this bishop becomes very quickly involved in and being seen to be involved in the in the public life of the diocese, turning up at civic events in Ennis and Galway and Limerick. Philly and Kalani on, on the same day are not going to be possible. But with a little bit of delegation and a little bit of careful diary managing, I think it's going to be possible. Um, we're not all that different as people from Mayo to West Kerry. 
And people do drive long distances at this stage for, for holidays, for weekends, to get to their mobile homes, to go shopping in their supermarkets. We're a mobile society. We, we are. And the other thing is that the uh, there's been great work on producing motorways in the West. We are blessed now that uh, we can get from Limerick to Galway all the way on a motorway in an hour. So you would never have dreamt it before. And no. uh, you can get to Dublin in uh, two hours from uh, Ennis. So the island is shrinking in that regard, isn't it? The important thing is that the bishop is seen, that the bishop is involved, that the bishop is engaged. And I think that's really possible because the Church of Ireland is small in this area. Area and we need to be open to the wider community. Yeah. I was speaking earlier to Father Jerry Kenny, who's my colleague, who is the parish priest in Kilkee, and we were just talking, as we often do on this programme, talking about differences and what we've been doing in, in our different lives uh, each week. And of course, last week was the 70th anniversary of the accession of Queen Elizabeth to the throne. And I pointed out to Jerry, I'm sure he knew, but I just reminded him that, of course, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. Now, could you elaborate on that? Have I got the title right, do you think? No, I don't think so. Um, in, in England, the Queen's title is actually, is the she is the Supreme Governor. It's an acknowledgement of the role of government in terms of maintaining peace, stability and order and freedom of religion. The head of the Church of England, if I wanted to be very pious and holy, I might say that the head of the church, of course, is Jesus Christ. Mm. If I wanted to be very practical in terms of who the head of government of the Church of England is, I might say the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. But a lot of other bishops would disagree with me then because each bishop is a prince in his own diocese. And the Queen's role in the Church of England is to serve the church by legally making sure that there's freedom of religion and that there's general synod is called to order properly and those sort of things. Maybe what's good is that she's seen as being a person of deep moral principles and values. Yes. And that's important for the nation because at a time when everybody is questioning the morality and values of a government that seemed to break its own rules, yeah. uh, party on while other people can't yeah. mourn exactly. and grieve. Exactly. Her solid and lonely appearance at her husband's yeah. funeral. Yeah says something to me about the dignity of state that has been lost uh, over the last few decades. Yeah, that was very telling, wasn't it, to see that? And then to hear that on the night before that funeral... There were gatherings, and uh, uh, I find it uh, quite disgraceful. But there we are. No, Patrick, well, thank you. You've given us a, a very good insight in, into this, and I'd like to talk to you in just a minute. Uh, we're going to have a piece of music which you've chosen, and uh, and then we're going to talk more about you, if that's all right, because I'm very interested to, to hear how you became a priest and what else you've been doing if you haven't always been a priest. But uh, you've chosen some music. Music by Leonard Cohen. I have this idea. I've, I've already chosen the, the hymns and music for my for my funeral, which I hope doesn't take place for another forty or fifty years, because I'm only seventy at the moment. I would love to hear, as my coffin is being carried on the shoulders of friends or family members into church, I would love to hear Leonard Cohen's "Dance Me to the End of Love," because love is such an important value. But also, I'm, I've been deeply informed by the, uh, the spirituality and the poetry of Leonard Cohen who I first became enchanted by him as a poet rather than a singer. Mm. This is this is what I want to hear when my coffin has been brought into the well, church. Very good. Um, and let's hope it's not done for many, many years yet. But uh, here is Leonard Cohen.
tempts me to your beauty with a burning violin dance me through the panic Due to rights reasons, I'm afraid we can't play you the full Leonard Cohen record, but what I have done is put a link to it on Spotify in the description below. Dance me to your beauty with a burning violin Dance me through the panic till I'm gathered That was Leonard Cohen, Dance Me to the End of Love, which is Patrick's uh, choice for his funeral, which is rather sad. But uh, it is, of course, Valentine's Day tomorrow, Patrick, so it was right that we should have love to think about that at the same time, even if it's going to be such a... Well, no, perhaps it'll be a glorious occasion when you pass away at the age of 120, which seemed to be what you were hoping it would be. But, uh, no... You'll be there. (laughs) I'll be one of the bearers of the coffin. But... uh, (laughs) So, Patrick, I'm I'm just intrigued. Um, I'd like to know more about you because I know you obviously as a priest at uh, Askeaton and Rathkeel over on the border in Kerry, but I know that you have more facets than that to talk to us. You were a journalist for 30 years. Yes, after I left school, I was training to be a chartered surveyor, but I never actually finished my qualifications at Reading University because I was too busy contributing freelance articles to local newspapers in the English Midlands, in Litchfield and Tamworth, where I have strong family identities. And I became a freelance journalist and I was making, getting more fun out of it as well as making more money out of it than as a trainee chartered surveyor. And I applied for and got my first salaried job as a journalist with the Wexford people back in 1972. So that's 50 years ago. Yeah. And I worked there for a few years and then moved to the Irish Times on the basis that the only experience I was not getting was in international news. The Wexford people let me do everything from contributing illustrations to writing my own column, to designing from pages, to reporting on church events, to covering rugby matches. So I did everything over about three years. And then I went to the Irish Times because I wanted experience in international affairs and ended up as uh, as the foreign desk editor for the last eight years of my life in the Irish Times. But I was also contributing to magazines and to television and radio over that time as well. And when I was working as a journalist with the Irish Times, I, I travelled all over the world. I used to, to book for myself the best reporting opportunities that there were to go to Greece. So I spent a lot of time there. And uh, I also managed to get a fellowship as a student through the Irish Times to go and study in Japan for a full term. And I decided I had missed out on my education and went back to, to college to do two degrees in the subject that mattered most to me at that stage, which is uh, theology. I, I thought I'll do a degree in what's my bedtime reading and what I'm reading on the bus going into work. And, and were you a lay minister or, or anything no, at that time? No. Not, not at that stage. I, I did those degrees in 1984 and the second one finished in 1987. And it was not until after my sons were baptised that I offered myself, first of all, for lay ministry as a reader. And that broke my heart because I realised that what I should have been doing was ordained ministry, that I should have been involved not just in preaching and leading services, but also be involved sacramentally. So I was 48 when I was ordained a deacon in 2000, 49 when I was ordained a priest in 2001. But I continued working as a journalist with the Irish Times for a little while after that. 
I suppose that call to, to ministry, though, had been there since I was a 19-year-old. As a 19-year-old, I walked into a, a church in Litchfield because I was interested in it architecturally. Um, architecture and architectural photography remains one of my great hobbies. Walked into that church and at the age of 19, felt I was filled with the light and the love of God. And that remains with me. It's not a past experience from over 50 years ago. It's a present experience that lives with me every day and every night, even when I'm asleep. And I didn't know how to respond to it. And I walked up to, to Litchfield Cathedral that evening for Coral Evensong. And one of the residentiary canons said to me, I suppose a young man like you is thinking of coming back to church because you're interested in ordination. Now, there was a, I went to the Senate group. There was almost 30 years between that experience all in one day and then being ordained. And, uh, and somebody said to me on the day that I was ordained, well, I saw that happening over the last 30 years. <laughs> And I thought I was going to remain a worker priest. I thought I was going to stay in the Irish Times. But the opportunity came to, I was, I had to be a curate in some parish. I was curate in a parish in uh, Rathfarnham in South Dublin, where I lived for a few years. And then I worked a while for a mission agency and started lecturing part-time in, in church history and theology and was offered a full-time job after another four years uh, to turn that part-time job into a full-time job. And it ended up in that um, when I retired from the Church of Ireland Theological Institute uh, at the age of 65, I was by then an assistant adjunct professor in Trinity College, Dublin. I've been teaching liturgy, church history, Anglicanism, patristics, and I loved every moment of it. But I still wanted to put into practice what I had been teaching. I used to say to my students who were all doing a master's degree for ordination, that what you're training to be is not to be a new bishop or to be a dean or to be an archdeacon. What you're training to be is an ordinary priest among ordinary people in an ordinary parish. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to, to cash in the check that I had been writing for everybody else. I wanted to do what it says in the tin. And I have become an ordinary priest in an ordinary parish with ordinary people. And I've been here for the last five years. Yeah. So looking back, although, as you say, you've got many, many years ahead of you yet, but looking back, which was the most satisfying time of your life, do you think? To be a journalist and, and to buzz around the world and, and follow up big stories or, or just to go to a, a local newspaper and cover knitting circles and rugby matches and things? What was the most satisfying or what is the most satisfying? Yeah. To be very frank with you, I, I live in the present moment. I have had very few ambitions as such in life. I hadn't got a career path in front of me. So at the moment, I'm enjoying this interview. <laughs> well, I hope it's not the high spot of your life. I hope well, you know. <laughs> it's the high spot of today, isn't it? Um, and I have, no, I have no ambitions at all. That sounds crazy for a man because men are supposed to project ourselves and to, to want the flashiest car. I never learned to drive a car, to be the best rugby player. I was never even picked for the third 15. Not a great cricket player. I was always bowled out for nil. But I like what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. And the moment I... Uh, St. Teresa of Avila talks about that we are in the right place at the right time that God has placed us there and to make the most of that. And I, yeah. I hope that's what I'm doing. One of the other things you are doing, which uh, I, I assume you enjoy doing because you do a lot of it and you're very successful at it, and that is blogging. Uh, you told me last week when we were chatting the number of hits you get on your website. First of all, tell me what your website is, your, your blog is. 
Easy to find www.patrickcomerford.com. Couldn't be easier than that. I blog every day. At the moment, I do a little prayer diary or a reflection in the morning, which is at the moment it's quotations from Teresa of Avila and uh, the gospel reading for the Eucharist or the Mass that morning, and a little reflection from or a prayer from the Anglican Mission Agency, United Society of Partners in the Gospel, USPG. I was a trustee of USPG for six years. And I blog that every morning. And then I, most evenings I will have an, an, another blog reflection on what I've been doing during the day or what I was doing last week. It may include photographs of interesting buildings that I like or something on family history or poetry or some of my other favourite topics. And, and then I also include on my blog my, my Sunday morning sermons. I'll put up any magazine articles that have been published that I've written or occasionally chapters and books after the books have been sold out. I don't want to take away from their sales. And so on average, it's about two blog postings a day. And it has a huge impact. At the moment, I'm getting about an average of about 1,900 or 2,000 hits a day, which means over the course of a week that more people are reading my blog than are reading the local newspapers that I once worked for. Hmm. Um, And they come from all over the world, and I can see that they come from all over the world. And it's a new form of writing. I can't explain why I do it, but I worked in the Irish Times for many years with John Banville, who once said to me, if you want to be a writer, you've got to write 500 words a day. Even if it's complete and utter rubbish, write 500 words a day. It's like if you want to be physically fit, go and have a jog every day. If you want to, um, yeah, if you want to do anything, you've got to do it every day. And and this is a, a mental and an intellectual and a spiritual exercise for me each day. Uh, I don't suppose any of us knows when we write as writers who our target audience is. When uh, Samuel Johnson was writing on Grub Street, I didn't know that the newspapers were going to be read in the coffee shops and how newspapers were going to develop. Uh, I don't think any of the great poets or essayists knew who was going to read them. T.S. Eliot didn't set out to be the great poet of the 20th century. He just wrote what he felt was appropriate and probably thought he was going to end up as a minor poet who was going to be forgotten when he died. And maybe, you know, I'm going to be a minor blogger, but I'm showing showing the way for other people about how we can reach people through our writings uh, in a way that's appropriate in the 21st century. You don't have to buy the book. You don't have to see the movie. You don't have to read the book reviews. It's there. It's available. It's online and it's free and you just click onto it. And, and it is free and you don't monetize it in any way. No, I've, I've refused, for example, to accept free meals in restaurants. If I blog about a meal that I've had in a restaurant, it's because I liked it or I didn't like it. And I'm under obligation to nobody. I've refused books from publishers who've asked me to review books saying, no, if I buy the book and I read it and I think it's worth a mention, then I'll mention it. But you don't carry any advertising. That would be the other source of, uh, you know, of much monetizing, wouldn't it, to to uh, allow advertising whoever... I haven't even been tempted to no. look at that. I don't want access to porn sites on, on through my... Absolutely. No, I, I understand I that. Political advertisers um, um, promoting uh, anti-vax views or things like no, that. No, no. I, I, 
I want to be in control of what's on my blog and I want people to know that it's there with integrity and that they can trust what I say. Yeah, but uh, I only mentioned that because each of the websites that, or the blogs that you were talking about, the local newspapers, um, they would also be looking to bump up their numbers to be yes. able to uh, to get more advertising. And so there's obviously money in clicks. Yes, but there's no clickbait on my, on my sites. <laughs> Um, on my pages. There's no clickbait there. You're only there to see what I think is important. And I'm not going to try and uh, lure you in with lurid photographs. I'm not going to to sensationalize anything. This is what I'm thinking at the moment. And this is where I am. If if we can get more honest writing, we get more literature as well, of course. Yeah. And, And the thing about your website is it's not just dry text. You have some most beautiful photographs. You are a very good photographer, aren't you? I'm not actually, I'm, I, that's the camera on my phone. I know nothing about photography. I just rely on what my eyes see, and I'm short-sighted in one of them, and I'm colorblind. But what I see is what I want people to see. And, and if it's worth my while saying to somebody, this is beautiful or this is interesting, then the photograph goes up. I've never entered a, um, a competition for photographs. I think once one of my photographs was used on the Late Late Show and once one of my photographs was used on the weather forecast for BBC Midlands. Uh, well, Fame indeed. That, that, was, that wasn't my pushing them. That was some researcher's decision to use them. Yeah. And I never got paid. <laughs> No, no. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's been a very interesting insight. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much. Good night.